Welcome back, everyone, to episode four of the Dice Pirates. We're going to be taking a deep dive into Dune today. I'm your captain, Ian, joined here by my bosun, Matt. Um, Matt, you realize this is an audio podcast, right? Like, nobody can see that you dressed up as a pirate. Uh, yeah, but it makes me feel so much better to have my, like, torn pantaloons and my bandana on my head. And I want to talk to you about a parrot that I'm thinking about getting with all the profits we're making off this podcast. That's a very sad, small parrot. Yeah, it's uh, I've got it on layaway at PetSmart. I'm making installment <laughs> payments. <laughs> These installments over 20 years, you lay not taking out a mortgage on this parrot. I'm just hoping the parrot will live long enough for me to actually purchase it. Ooh, it's a it's a long shot there, man. Yeah, well, sort of grim way to start the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. But so we're here to talk about Doom. But before we get to that, I want to cover uh, what we what we've been playing lately. Yeah, we've been playing a lot of really good games. Actually, we played uh, uh, we played Root, which was really fun. I think we might could uh, bring that up in uh, the discussion of this game because it really has a lot of uh, some of that DNA of, uh, of Doom. But a game I want to talk about specifically is a game that we haven't played, but that I'm excited about playing, or at least very interested in. And that is the new dungeon crawler from Fantasy Flight, Descent Legends of the Dark. I wanted to bring it up briefly because uh, I thought it was an interesting kind of epilogue to our big dungeon crawl deep dive that we did with the last episode. And in that episode, I alluded to uh, Fantasy Flight kind of having uh, there was rumors of a new Descent game coming out. And literally the next day after we uh, dropped that episode, uh, Fantasy Flight did announce this wild new dungeon crawl game, and I am trying to wrap my head around how I feel about it. Did you see the news on this? Uh, I looked at the link you sent me, and um, it's interesting because I think what you want to talk about is the fact that the game revolves around an app. That's something we talked about previously in our dungeon crawl episode, is we like that um, Descent has the app-driven gameplay with it. But I know you want to talk about a different aspect of that. Well, you know, it's interesting to me, this whole app-driven thing in board games, because uh, you're right, the Descent uh, 2nd Edition Fantasy Flight eventually came out with an iPad app that would let you play it fully co-op, and it got rid of the need for the Overlord player. And that was a pretty cool addition, and I enjoyed playing with that. But the game still had a full set of rules that didn't require the Overlord, so, or didn't require the app, I'm sorry. So you could play it... Uh, without that, if you wanted, you can play just with friends. Uh, this game, as far as I can tell, in the pre-release kind of preview stuff, seems to entirely operate on this app. And I think that raises a lot of questions for us as like gamers. Like, do we like that? Because that means you're sort of like dependent on Fantasy Flight keeping this iPad app updated and uh, keeping it functional. You know, that's something that kind of freaks me out. You know, if this game doesn't sell well if uh, you know Fancy Flight changes hands. If something happens in five, ten years down the road, you know this app stops being updated. You know you might not be able to play this very expensive board game that you bought. Uh, the retail price for this is looking to be something like $175. And you know to be fair, it's full of gorgeous minis and wild-looking 3D uh, components and terrain and all the stuff that makes for a pretty impressive board game. But still. That's a lot of money for a game that, hypothetically, you might not be able to play uh, indefinitely, or if you don't have internet access for some reason where you're at. I mean, that's that's kind of a weird thing. What do you, what do you, how are you feeling about this whole app-driven uh, side of board games? So I think that what you brought up is a very good point, that if the developer does not support the app, if they're not putting effort in behind it, if they don't bother even updating it, 
those things can quickly become obsolete. You might not even be able to download them anymore. If you do not download them, they might not work correctly, um, especially with you know the way that a lot of the app stores work. It just it does introduce an aspect of uncertainty to <clears throat> things, and I think that to a certain extent that's very um, it's very apt to talk about that now because we are going to be talking about Dune, a game that came out in the 70s and people loved and adored for decades, and we're still going back to play because. They could do that. They could go and they could print their own stuff, but you can't print your own app. You can't do that. And unless they do give you the ability to have your own rulebook optional or download something to work with, it is going to make it a very difficult to play. Yeah, that is something that I thought about, is this idea of board games as these kind of artifacts that you can carry with you. That's a great point about Dune, and kind of, as you'll talk about, this is a game that has really storied history that people fell in love with in the 70s and 80s and played their vintage copies of it on into the 90s and 2000s and that's not something you can do with a video game that might become obsolete and the technology behind it isn't there anymore and so as board games become more video game like that's going to create something that we've never experienced before in board gaming which is the idea that they become obsolete and outdated like an Atari or something and uh, that's a weird new dynamic we don't, uh, that's probably more than we want to unpack here at the top of the episode, but I, it's been on my mind ever since that came out. I'm fascinated by that game. I think it looks cool, The Descent Legends in the Dark. I'm going to keep following its development, but I definitely think it raises a lot of questions about what we really want out of games as board gamers. Yeah, and I think the massive price tag of the game is also something to be concerned about. I mean, that's an issue, not to stray too far from board games, but within video games with a lot of live service games lately and the tendency to work on games as they're being released, you do have that issue where people buy a game that is then dropped and they're not allowed to play that game anymore. And if the descent, if this game is unplayable without the app, you're left with very high-priced minis that you don't have a lot to do with other than introducing to other games. Exactly. And I'm not made of money, Ian. i got a parrot to pay off. How's that going for you, by the way? Poorly. <laughs> <laughs> like my bank account. Yeah. Uh, so how about you? What have you been playing recently? I have actually been playing Star Realms in the app, talking about app-driven games. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, now, Star Realms in the app is purely an app experience. You download it, you're playing it within the app. But I really enjoy it because you get like a campaign of sorts. Um, and it's mostly just like goals you're based around. Like you're only given yellow and red cards instead of the other cards. You're also maybe fighting a pirate-based deck. So it will do things that are very unfair, but after you play a little bit, you can work around it. Um, there's not a lot to say about it, besides it's just Star Realms in-app version, but I like it a lot because, you know, you can play it offline. It's just really fun to pick up and play yourself, and, you know, of course, you can't play single-player in the normal Star Realms. Yeah, that's really interesting because uh, I know that that game has a pretty popular uh, scene around that app, and even I think does that app have like competitive, like online play? Like, it does, play? yeah. yeah I, I hear a lot about that. That's kind of a uh, a really popular kind of scene and extension of like the the uh, physical game. Um, maybe that's a upcoming board game topic is like the best like app versions of board games. Um, I don't have a lot of those and haven't played a lot, but there is something about taking like your favorite board game with you in your pocket and if you have some downtime somewhere just being able to play a quick round of Star Realms or whatever uh, game. Uh, there was a Fantasy Flight had a version of Elder Sign on the App Store at one point that I was tempted to get and I think it's pretty cheap now. Maybe I'll pick it up. Yeah, I think one of the best 
parts of having an app like that as well is that it gives you the ability to play these games single player when they might not be normally. Most games don't scale down to one player, and if you just really want to scratch that itch, it's nice to be able to just pick it up and play against some computers. That's cool. I'm going to have to check that out. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with our discussion on Dune. All right, and welcome back to the Dice Pirates, and we're going to dive into our main topic today, which is the board game Dune, based on the uh, classic Frank Herbert sci-fi novel from the 60s, a venerable classic of the sci-fi genre. Basically, most of the things you love about Star Wars and modern sci-fi kind of have their roots in Dune, and it uh, spawned an incredibly popular board game that uh, gained uh, prominence in sort of the early heyday of like strategy gaming and then has seen a resurgence thanks to a spiffy new re-release from Gale Force 9 with some uh, cool art and updated components and things. And we've been spending some time with this lately and we thought this would be a good game for our first episode that's a deep dive into a single game. Ian, I know that you've kind of been uh, leading the charge on doing some of the research on this. Tell us about the background and the history of this game and kind of how it sort of rose to popularity. So I think when we're looking at Dune, it's important to cover the context of gaming around the time that Dune came out. Because we think about a lot of these historic games, Monopoly, Life, um, I don't know if you ever played Payday, that was one that was popular yeah. in the 70s. There was this style of gaming that was, there was a style of gaming that was there it's very generic. It's, it's what we think of nowadays. It's just those boring games, you know, if you play the, you know, more complex games. Those classic family games. Classic family games. Um, but there was another aspect of board games back then that is really overlooked now, and that's wargaming. And wargaming is, you know, entirely, it's, it's kind of the predecessor in many ways to, you know, the modern day risk and things like that. And it very, very generalized. It was far broader. It had way more to it. But it is what led to a lot of that. And, Avalon Hill was a publisher who specialized in these games. Um, now, Avalon Hill actually designed a board game that revolved around the Roman Empire. And when they received the rights to Dune, they decided to take their Roman Empire-themed game and turn it into a space adventure, a sci-fi adventure. Oh, I never knew that, that it had its origins in like a, a Roman Empire game originally. But you could definitely see that... like. Influence of like uh, factions uh, vying for power. There's uh, there's definitely kind of a classic Age of Warfare kind of vibe to the finished game. Absolutely, I could see the um, board potentially being reimagined as you know possibly a a larger version of maybe Italy or something, or even maybe just the city itself and trying to buy over strategic areas. You know, maybe yeah. trying to take over Rome. So it's interesting to learn that. But Dune was extremely successful. It very quickly generated a cult hit. Um, it was released in 1979, and then by 1984, it was popular enough, and with the movie that came out, Avalon Hill actually re-released Dune with two new expansions. These were the Spice Harvest and the Duel. Um, I'm sure we'll cover those both later, but they not only added complexity to the game, but they made the game last even longer. One of the things about Dune is that it can be short to play, but it can also take a really, really long time to play. I mean, if you're sitting with six people and you're trying to get through the game, it can take, you know, four to six hours to get through And if you're playing all the way to the end. I think uh, this game probably resonated with people so much because not only did it have that strategic depth that it could be a really uh, 
deep game that takes hours and hours to play, but it's an incredibly thematic game that really captures the world of Dune. And so many of the elements from the book come alive in the game, like sandworms and the sandstorms blowing across the planet, to even just the subtle things like the way uh, each faction has its own distinct flavor that's unique to them, the Emperor's ability to gain more gold than anybody else, and the treacherous Harkonnens having more uh, traitors in their hand. There's all these little touches that make that world come to life. I think it is by far one of the best adaptions we've seen of a pre-existing property, just because it, it does encapsulate what these you know disparate groups were actually trying to do, and it puts it into a game form. The asymmetric aspect of the game, where every single faction has a different way they play the game, but also in many cases they have a different goal. They're trying to win in a different way than all the other groups are. And the fact that when you play as different factions, your game is different every single time. Because if you're the Spacing Guild, you're trying to keep people from winning. Because your aim is to get to the very end of the game and have nobody win. However, if you're, say, the Fremen, you want to hit fast and you want to hit hard and you want to take over the strongholds in the desert. Just because that's your sole goal and that's the only thing you need to do. Absolutely. I mean, depending on which faction you play, you're going to have a wildly different experience playing this game. Just the fact that there's something like that in play as kind of a wild card shows how kind of ingenious uh, this design is. It really feels like a... Um, I don't know, it feels real. It feels believable because each group has distinct motivations and so negotiation and trying to figure out your opponents feels very much like real political or factions or nation-states kind of making decisions. One of the things I really liked about going back and revisiting this as I was, you know, researching it is the aspect of, you know, magazine gaming magazines were a thing that I felt were much bigger during that small period of time than they, they probably are now, um, at least, you know, that I'm aware. And there was just, you know, it was very, it was very marketed towards a specific group of people. And Avalon Hill had their magazine that they would put out and they actually released three factions that you could um, print out yourself. Uh, through this magazine. So they were expanding the game um, through subscriptions to their magazine, which is a really interesting model that I don't think I've seen anywhere else. Oh, that's really cool to think about, like, gaming media at that time and kind of the, commu the community around games existing in this, like, pre-internet age and the companies, like, leveraging magazines to put out more content. Game expansions being such an early uh, part of board games. I, I don't know why, I just imagine that being a more modern... Thing maybe coming out of like expansions for, for video games, but I mean they were putting out expansions of this in the early 80s. Yeah, and they really did aggressively go after it. Um, there was a, you know, shortly after the movie, and they had their two expansions. There was a French version that was actually released um, that came with both expansions in the box. So something they pushed very quickly. They wanted to get people invested in. It. Um, the expansions are interesting, and I'd love to talk about those later because they really add on to the game. They're very they feel different to me than expansions we have now, but moving forward within um, the timeline, you could actually have a nine-player game of Dune at one point, um, which feels bonkers. I don't know that I ever want to subject myself to that. I couldn't imagine it. We, uh, again, kind of jumping around a little bit, but we played a, a six-player uh, game of it. It was a really fun experience, but it was grueling, and it was a long day, and I could not imagine playing this with nine players but it definitely would increase the complexity and just it would uh, spice things up. See, I did there. <laughs> uh, 
I will say this, just talking about the history of the game, um, looking back at the old, those old versions, I love that vintage sci-fi art on the original uh, versions. And if I could find a, an old copy of Dune at a thrift store or something, I would love to get my hands on it because as good a job as Gale Force 9 did with modernizing this game and bringing it back to the market, uh, I part of me wishes they would have kept that vintage uh, 70s sci-fi look of some of the some of the cards and components from the original game. So it's interesting that you bring up wanting to find that old game and be able to experience it because that was something that people really wanted to be able to do. Avalon Hill eventually, you know, went out of business and they did not continue publishing Dune partially because of the reception to the movie. It was just it did not pick up steam as much as they thought it was. The board game didn't, wasn't as successful as they hoped it would be. And so Dune became something that was very, very difficult to find. Um, it was hard to find a copy. They became very expensive. And something that happened in the um, you know, early, uh, early 2000s is fans began to come together and they created a version of the game that you could play through fan-made art. So there was actually a fan-made print-and-play back in 2010 that you could get all your pieces, you could print them out, and you could have your own version of the game. Um, essentially, you're talking about the art, because the art on Gale Forces 9 was actually done by a guy called Ilya Barnovsky. Um, he did this art, actually, for fan versions of the game, back before okay. Gale Force 9 was originally working with it. And when Gale Force 9 decided to, when they got the rights to the game, they actually went ahead and contacted him and used a lot of his art for the actual release of the game. Gale Force 9, what I really appreciate learning about the way they did this is they really were tapped into the community behind Dune. They really did respect the way that Dune's fan base had built up the game over time. One of the most interesting things about playing Dune now is that you have two different rule sets. You have your basic rule sets and you have your advanced rule sets. Now the advanced rule sets were actually is actually a conglomeration of the most popular house rules and more advanced rule sets from the old Dune board game. Because of course, being released back in 79, you have you have 40 years worth of content and fans working on things. And so there were a lot of there were a lot of house rules that were picked up. There were a lot of rule adjustments that were done over time, and Gale Force really zeroed in on the ones that they felt were best and created an option for people to play both versions if they want. So this is like a labor of love to keep this game alive over a long period of decades where it was out of print, not being published by anybody, and almost impossible to find in stores, and yet people remembered it. The legend of the game kind of loomed over the board game scene, and people came together and basically recreated this game out of nowhere. And the fact that we have a new kind of uh, prestige version of it on the market that we can buy is just kind of a testament to the power of the gaming scene to uh, keep a beloved game, um, you know, in the zeitgeist. Uh, it's interesting how, uh, you know, I'm still kind of, uh, you know, new to the gaming hobby, relatively speaking. Uh, we've only been playing, you know, serious like hobby games for just a few years. And when I was getting into the hobby and reading on blogs and kind of digging into it on social media, I would see people talking about Dune as this kind of mythic game that was uh, so many people's number one favorite game, but uh, you know, you'd never see it in the wild. You, you, wasn't, you couldn't find it in stores. Uh, you'd occasionally see something on Instagram or board game groups somewhere was playing it, and it just, it honestly felt like to me like a game I would probably never play. So when Gale Force 9 brought it back to the market uh, recently, I just, I, I, I definitely was going to pick it up. Uh, one of our, uh, 
fellow Dice Pirates, Dennis is a Dune super fan, and so as soon as it was announced, he's like, I'm getting this. <laughs> so uh, we got it pretty quickly to the table. To me, it really lived up to the hype uh, of a game that's kind of almost seemed sort of legendary. I didn't know if it would really be as good, and then sometimes these games from the 70s and 80s just haven't aged as well. Man, this game was as good as the hype the first time we played it. It really was. It absolutely deserves its position, sort of it, this mythic position it has within the board game community. And you're right, it did have a massive influence on the way that things were developed over time. Um, you know, of course, after Avalon Hill, you know, evaporated, they lost the rights to Dune. Um, Fantasy Flight actually obtained the rights to the game mechanics, not the, not the license itself, but they obtained the rights to the game mechanics and released Rex, Final Days of an Empire, which is essentially Dune within the Twilight Imperium universe. I've heard really good things about that game. It um, shows up uh, from time to time on lists of like you know people's favorite games. Uh, Shut Up and Sit Down, uh, the board gaming site and YouTube channel that I really love, uh, had favorably reviewed that. And I was this close to buying a copy of it, but it's sort of, uh, I think now it's out of print. It's kind of hard to get. But yeah, that was just another example of how the game kind of uh, was sort of reborn uh, for another era, but without the Dune license. Yeah, it just, it really has, it, it's clear how it's impacted so many different developers over time, just the massive shadow that it looms over, because it was incredibly successful. It has this fan base that kept it alive for 40 years until it was finally brought back. And like you said, it lives up to the hype as a game. It's incredibly well designed. There's very little about it that feels like it shouldn't be there and feels like it needs to be trimmed out. And Gale Force 9 especially did a good job of trimming off, I think, the excess and figuring out what needed to be updated. But there still are aspects of Dune that do feel very different from development today. The game is brutal in a way you don't normally see nowadays. That's very true. It is. Uh, it's not beginner friendly. Um, it is doesn't ease you into the experience. And it, it it can be, uh, and it can be like brutally unfun at times if your faction is just not working. And those are things that were part of gaming in the 70s and 80s that we've sort of like sanded off the rough edges some. And a lot of designers now want to make sure games are a little more balanced with like catch up mechanics to make sure if somebody's having a rough time, they can kind of uh, stay in the fight, or uh, games that are more intuitive and less obtuse right out of the gate. Uh, Dune is sort of unabashedly old school in all of those ways. It requires a tremendous amount of investment on you as a player to try to learn it. It requires you to be willing to lose horribly and just have to play it again and maybe have a better time with it. And all of that may, maybe makes it sound bad, but if you're kind of a seasoned gamer looking for a more in-depth challenge, uh, this is a really robust game to uh, sink your teeth into. It really is. Um, I like we said about it just being very uncompromising in the way that it approaches things. And I do want to get more into the specifics of the game just to understand how it is that this game works. But real quick, I do want to talk about the Duel, which is one of the expansions that Avalon Hill came out with. Because... When you talk about being unflinching in its ability to make you really, you know, sit back and be like, oh man, this is not something we'd see nowadays. The duel had a lot of different aspects to it, but one of the things that it would do, it enabled you to kill other leaders. You would give everybody an additional leader, and if that leader died, you were done. You packed your stuff up from the table, and you were out of the game. That was just it for you. 
And we don't see that in games nowadays. That's not a, you don't do that. You don't make the game state such that one player is just gone. That's such a Monopoly era type concept where you're playing with four people and all of a sudden because one person messed up, they're just gone. You're playing with three people now. What's that person going to do for the rest of the five hours? Yeah, imagine like uh, setting aside a Saturday to play this game with friends, and you just screw up and get your leader killed on like the second turn. And it's just like, okay, I guess I'm gonna maybe go to the movies or something. I'll see you guys later. Uh, that would be wild. And that's one of those things about Dune that makes it sort of idiosyncratic compared to modern board games, because modern board game designers would not want you to have that that of an experience. So you actually, it's pretty rare to see games that outright eliminate players. But again, Dune is just sort of unabashedly old school and um, and not afraid to uh, punch you in the teeth a little bit. Oh yeah. I will be very interested to see if Neo Force 9 decides to bring those expansions in a more updated version to the game that they re-released. Because that's, when you talk about sanding off the rough edges, even within the house rules themselves, the dual ability to just eliminate a player from the game was very quickly mitigated by players because that's not a fun mechanic. And so it was very quickly turned into something where there were downsides but you weren't just gone. And so that's one of the earliest aspects we see of, you know, the fans beginning to adjust the game themselves. I think the smartest thing Gale Force 9 did with this release was actually packaging it with uh, the basic and the advanced rules. Creating the basic and advanced rules does mean that you have a cleaner, in some ways more modern version of the game to play around with. Uh, but then if you want to, to dig into a more, I don't know, vintage kind of... Uh, brutal war game you can use those advanced rules we've played both and i gotta be honest as fascinating as that advanced rule set set is it's uh i don't know if my brain has enough power at this phase of my life to actually do the advanced uh version there's just so much to it i think that when you're approaching dune it's important to look at it as a game that has extended over this time because the advanced rules are not hard and set in stone if you want to add some of those and leave the rest of them out you can go ahead and do that because the game was built on fans making their own rules and adjusting those. Um, but I do want to briefly cover the way that Dune is played, just because we've talked a lot about it, but I want to give people just an idea of how the game plays, how it, how those brutal mechanics can manifest themselves within the game itself. Yeah, it's a classic kind of dudes-on-the-map game, but with sort of a unique flavor. So the board itself is actually a spherical map, and the goal of the game for most factions is to control some of these cities on the map. And this is done, you know, you just have to have your troop stationed there. There are a lot of different places you can move to, but a lot of the map is actually very unsafe to be because there's a sandstorm that revolves around the map. This is where the circular aspect of the map comes comes in because the sandstorm will constantly circle around, and that's a big aspect in terms of how you gain resources, where you can be safely on the map, especially as the game moves on. Some safe areas may be destroyed and you might not be safe there anymore. So the map itself is very fascinating because it's divided into wedges, but also it's divided into areas that you can move. And those two don't always correspond to each other. It's a much more complicated map than we normally see in any game, really. Yeah, I mean, there's two planes of movement basically happening in this. There are uh, spaces like you would see in a game like Risk or any kind of game that's sort of map-based, like you move from this section to this section, these sort of irregularly shaped, you know, sections that represent geographical spaces. But then there's those wedges that are also in play because those uh, represent the entire area that the sandstorm is going to cover. So, yeah, you're playing this like three-dimensional chess while you're playing this because you're thinking like, 
where you're going to be moving from like space to space, but also having to keep into mind uh, the potential that you could get completely wiped out by uh, the sandstorm. And because the sandstorm's uh, movement is randomized, you can feel like you're safe and then not be safe. So it's just all of this, uh, all these layers of like danger and complexity. You know, I remember distinctly, you know, winning a battle and sitting on top of a big pile of spice only to watch in horror as like the sandstorm, which felt so far away, just swooped across the map and like wiped out everything. I lost all the spice. I lost all the guys. And then I just, I just went and cried in a corner by myself for a little while. It's rough. The game in a meta sense is really about the accumulation of spice. It's the only resource of the game. You use spice to revive your troops that you need beyond your ones that you get for free. You use spice to ship troops onto the planet. You use spice to move them around if you can. You use spice to uh, power your troops up. It's all very thematic as well because that's something that was very rooted into the way the world worked in the book as well. So that's another aspect where I think they did a good job with that. But the aspect of getting spice and then trying to spend it is fascinating because there are different factions that gain spice automatically. These So every faction has ways that they play around it. Your other factions, the Harkonnens, the House of Atreides, they don't have an automatic way of getting spice. They have to fight for it on the planet. And so they're really focused on getting that spice and trying to do that because they have other powers. But without spice, they're basically useless. So it really is about fighting around this spice, trying to do that. But if you overextend too far and you don't end up in a position where you're able to achieve your goal and you run out of that, you're dead in the water. Yeah, that is a, such a brilliant and subtly devious part of the design. The fact that there are two factions at the table who the other players are having to give spice to, having to give money to in order to take like important game actions. I mean, transporting your troops onto the planet's surface is integral to winning the game if you're Harkonnen or uh, any of the other groups. And yet, every time you do it, you make a big move, you know, you want to bring some troops down. Every time you do it, you know you're handing that spacing guild player spice that they're going to in turn use to take actions that could hurt you. So what what a dilemma to think like, okay, exactly how many troops should I move to accomplish what I want to do but not give the Spacing Guild any more money? And then the same thing with buying cards. There's this whole wild uh, phase of the game where you are bidding over face-down cards. Uh, I feel like you could write a, a whole paper about just the bidding component of the game, but every turn there are these face-down cards, and these cards are important items that can help you win the game or powers that you can play on your turn to do all kinds of things, from weapons that you can use in a fight to uh, cards that you can play that can have significant world impacts uh, on the whole game. So you need these cards, but they're face down, and, it, and you don't know what you're bidding on. You're bidding blind. And some of the cards in the deck are literal junk. I mean, you can buy a donkey or a useless old dusty cape or something that has no impact at all. One player at the table... Uh, knows which faction is it that knows the Atreides? Yeah, the House of Atreides actually knows, and so they're sitting over there. Literally, it says in the manual for them to keep notes on who knows what, and the other players can bribe or persuade to get that knowledge out of that player. But you're bidding blind, and the bidding can really start to stack up if somebody thinks that a card has maybe is really good, maybe the Atreides players tip somebody off, and then as this bidding goes up, the final payment, all of it goes to the Emperor. What a wild situation where one player is gaining all this benefit, there's hidden information. The trading part of this game by itself 
the card drafting, uh, card bidding uh, phase of this game just by itself is as rich as almost like a whole game. Yeah, I think what you touched on though is the disparate abilities that people have and the option for some factions to gain more information is key to why I think this game has lasted so long and why people love it so much. Because baked into the idea of the game is these social encounters. The game not only encourages bribery, it incentivizes it. It is, if you are sitting on money and you want to fight somebody else, it is easy for you to just give some money to the guy who knows what all the cards are and have him tell you what cards that guy has. And you can do that. And the game has actually well-defined rules around the way bribery works. You can bribe people to do actions and they must take that action. Handshake deals in this game are binding. It's wild to me how every time we played this game, the world of the game actually comes alive around the table as much as if you're playing a role-playing game like Dungeons and Dragons. The game kind of forces you to role-play as your faction a little bit because they do have these unique abilities. If you're playing the Emperor, every time someone plays the Emperor, they just become this money-hungry person because they, money is coming in. They're like tossing out bribes at other players because they have so much money to play around with. It's just like... Yeah, House of Trades, I'll give you a handful of spies if you tell me what the five cards are. I'll give you a handful of spies if you promise not to attack me this turn. Uh, the, the Emperor always becomes this, like, spin golly. It doesn't matter who's playing them. Same thing with, like, Harkonnen. Uh, I've played House, Car- House Harkonnen every time we've played this, which is a wild anomaly that has come up. I don't know that it's such an anomaly, considering that's definitely your personality. I'm not saying you've stabbed me in the back multiple times, but you have stabbed me in the back multiple times. One day on this podcast, we're going to have to really unpack the great Twilight Imperium betrayal of uh, 2017 (laughs) that still echoes uh, to this day the ramifications of it, but um, that's neither here nor there. Uh, But no, you're right. Whenever I play Harkonnen, whoever plays Harkonnen is going to have to become this devious backstabber because literally you have more traitors than anyone else. That's a whole other uh, mechanic we haven't touched on is that at the start of the game you get a handful of these traitor cards and if your opponent happens to play a leader that you have as a traitor you instantly win that fight it, you know if, if their uh, leader is in your pocket as a betrayer it's just like bam you've been betrayed I win and everyone else has two uh, the Harkonnens have four so right out of the gate you are more apt to uh, be able to backstab and betray somebody and that just bleeds into how you think about encounters trying to goad somebody into a fight because you know that you have their traitor or uh, things like that. So it's just uh, the game's theme just comes alive uh, in the way players start discussing and thinking. I've just very few games like uh, have that kind of energy. It really does revolve around that social aspect of the game. And in a big part, because the game can be very deceptive when you first look at it. You see it and you think, okay, circle risk, let's go. And then, after you play it that first time, you realize that fighting isn't a huge part of the game. It's important, and you have to fight to win, but fighting is really damaging, and you don't want to do it. Because the fighting system works on wagers. If I have 10 troops available, and you have 10 troops available, we both wager how many troops we're going to spend. And if I spend more than you, I'm going to win the fight. But the number of troops that I wager will die. So if I wager 10 troops and I win, all of my troops are gone and I no longer have control over that city. So fighting becomes really a no-win situation because you either lose all of your troops and die or you wager a lot of them 
and you're left very weak for the next person to move in. So it's far more about posturing, working on your allies to try and put yourself in a beneficial position, those perfectly placed bribes that lead you in a position where they're not going to attack you or you know just the right card so you can backstab that guy and turn on your ally in the last moment. So fighting is merely another avenue for the social machinations of the game. Yeah, you're not going to win this game by running and gunning all over the map and just like uh, fighting your way out of every jam. Fighting in this game is brutally costly, which is a really smart way to approach warfare. It should be avoided, uh, just like in real life. It's costly, it's devastating. And uh, nations, uh, groups, uh, try to be ready to fight, but then try not to fight as much as possible. So winning Dune is really about amassing power and then applying it in a really smart, strategic way. You want to pick your battles very, very carefully. You can't just willy-nilly uh, fight your way out of everything. It, uh, it might be a good time now to kind of point to some of the games that have been influenced by Dune. And Scythe from Stolmeyer game has that exact same mechanic of where uh, fighting in that game is incredibly costly. You can win, but you can uh, lose so many resources uh, in trying to win that fight if you set yourself up for failure. And so you want to be ready to fight, but you don't really want to fight. You want to be strong enough where people don't want to fight you. Uh, Scythe is a game that clearly drew a lot of its inspiration from this, all the way down to the little battle wheel and the way you play cards. I mean, it is uh, this game's uh, uh, influence kind of is still rippling out. Um, Twilight Imperium, I think, is another game that is tremendously uh, connected to Dune. The way the different factions work, the way you sort of have to like role play and think about what your faction is trying to accomplish, and uh, the negotiations that happen around the table. Uh, there's just so many games that uh, drew uh, inspiration from this game that, honestly, when you play Dune, if you've been playing board games for a while now, it will it'll probably feel strangely familiar to you uh, because so many other games have pulled from it. Yeah, Avalon Hill really developed a lot of very interesting systems, and it would be interesting. There is a limit to how far back I was able to go, but I would be very interested to look back and see how much of what they created was new or refined from other sources and what was just copied from existing age at the time because there really is so much i mean you have you know the action you know movement system you have card drafting you have you know the whole you know bribery system you have just your generic battles that are very different from the way a lot of other battles work there's so much to the game that is added on and they didn't stop there when you have the expansions the spice harvest is a Game, it is entirely pr played before the actual game of Dune starts. You p open the Spice Harvest box, you play the Spice Harvest, and then you never touch it again for the rest of the game because the only thing that it does is it sets up your pre-game positions. Normally, the game will tell you what you have on the planet, what you have available. This game, uh, the Spice Harvest expansion, lets you define that for yourself. And it's interesting because it's basically a pre-game poker session where you have one person who becomes a manager and they get the option to dole out spice to everybody. So they get a card that says how much spice they have available to dole out. They can lie about this card and they can say, oh, you get four spice and this guy gets two spice and this guy gets one spice. And then everybody gets to decide whether they're happy with the amount of spice they got. And if everybody's happy with it, nothing happens. But if nobody's happy, if, the people, if enough people aren't happy with it, they ask him if he's lying. And if he's lying, very bad things happen to you. So it's just this whole other mechanic completely separate from 
the original game itself that they just tacked onto this other onto this other game. Yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting. I didn't know about that uh, mechanic. Is that, is that an expansion that was? Uh, yeah, so that was expansions? that was one of the uh, the two expansions they added. That was a Spice Harvest expansion. The other expansion, Duel, actually had an entirely second game board where duels between characters would proceed with an entirely separate card deck. Wow. So now I'm really fascinated to know whether or not Gilforce will actually dip into those to try to bring them uh, back for this updated version. Um, they have released one ex- expansion that added new factions, but they haven't released anything yet that adds that all these totally new layers of depth and complexity. Um, I don't know that this game needs all that, though. When I hear you describing uh, that, I feel like that's almost... Uh, uh, too much frosting on a cake. I mean, this is a richly uh, flavored game as it is. I don't know that you need that much uh, complexity. And then, like I said, I really think the advanced rules uh, almost kind of broke my brain. Um, I think the game is is pretty uh, solid in, just in its basic form. Yeah, it's... I mean, it really is just an incredibly well-designed game. And I do give a lot of props to Gale Force 9 for really refining the game. Like you said, they did find a way to condense all of these disparate rules into one clearly defined rule set. So this conversation has kind of got me thinking about the game differently in one way, and that is like the incorporation of house rules to like customize it. I'm actually not a big house rule like fan. Uh, I tend to just want to play the game uh, the way it came out of the box because I generally believe that in most cases good games have been playtested, and good designers have written the rules intentionally, and for the most part, you should just, you know, you're better off sticking with that, and that house rules could potentially unbalance or mess up a, a good game experience. And so I generally don't do house rules, but thinking about the legacy and history of this game, house rules and customizations seem like they were a really big part of the gaming scene around this, and groups kind of figuring out how they wanted Dune to feel for their group and the way they want to play it and so yeah i think maybe like house rules and experimenting with different structures experimenting with different um uh, what modes of play maybe cherry picking from the advanced rules things you like things you don't to kind of get the dune that you like that could be something that would be fun to try as a group yeah i think it you really are encouraged to approach dune as a game that has its basic rule set but the advanced rule set is really a collection of homebrewed rules that you can pick and choose from as you want you can play all of them if you want but there's no reason you have to choose all of them because of the way the game was created, because of the long legacy it has. I think it's. I think you should be encouraged to look at it in that direction. Just kind of one last thing I think is interesting about Dune is that it is a game with a wildly varying playtime. Uh, it doesn't. Uh, it's going to play out over ten rounds or until you complete uh, the one of the win objectives for your faction, which could be uh, complete controlling three cities or five cities if you are in an alliance with somebody else. And that can take uh, hours, or it can take a shockingly short amount of time. We had one of the more memorable sessions of this we had. Uh, I, I won on the second or third round of play just because other people were kind of just focused on other things happening on the board, and uh, the cities were left undefended, and I was able to swoop in, grab console of three cities and just win out of nowhere and we had set aside like a long evening to play it and won it I think it was I think we played maybe an hour yeah the storylines that can come out of this game are absolutely amazing I think this is a game that is worth if you have a consistent gaming group that is willing to take the time and put it apart this is a game I think you really should play 
consistently, and not even not even necessarily consistently, but you should play it often enough to have those storylines fresh in your memory when you bring it bring it out. Because the more you play, the more the meta within your friend group is going to develop. You know who's always going to be devious. You know the guy who's generally honest. And then what happens if that honest guy decides to be devious that round? The storylines that come out of this are amazing, especially when you begin to develop those understandings of the way that your friends play the game. So if you are interested in the game, give it a shot, but also be willing to give it a couple more shots afterwards because the game only gets better the more you play it. I would agree with that. I mean, you're going to have a first session that's really just about getting the feel of it, and each subsequent time you play it, you're going to feel more comfortable with the complex rules, and then those cool stories start to happen. And this is a game that can have epic moments, the kind of things that make you... Uh, a board game fan for life. I'm sitting here looking at the board. We have it out in front of us right now, and I'm looking at the shield wall, which is this uh, section of rock on the map that uh, typically blocks the storm uh, and protects these cities that are on the other side of it. But there's a moment in the game that can happen when somebody plays a card that blows up the shield wall. And from that point forward, everything on the other side of it is vulnerable to the storm. And there was a game where I had a large number of people wiped out because of an uh, incredible sequence of events where the shield wall was blown up, the storm moved, it was just blue, it was totally unexpected, and those types of things are so great in a board game because they feel cinematic, they feel epic. Um, it's just, uh, you know, when you, can, when you have a game where you can shoot a force field with a laser beam and cause a nuclear explosion that destroys everything in the space, uh, that's uh, that that's that's a wild and memorable thing. <laughs> it leads to these moments that I definitely am never gonna forget. Some of my you know favorite moments in games have come from the board games we play that are directly influenced by Dune. And you like you talked about Twilight Imperium, Scythe, a lot of these games that give you the option for these incredible moments. And I don't I don't think there's I don't think there's enough that we can say about this game. I could gush about this game for hours. There are Issues with it, of course. I think the complexity can get a little bit much sometimes. There are rules that do feel incredibly crushing. And if you have groups that are going to be frustrated or aren't willing to deal with that social you know, machinations aspect of the game, then I wouldn't recommend the game because you're going to get some feelings hurt during the process of playing. But I think if you have a group that's willing to play it, it is one of those games that could very well become one of your top games ever. Yeah, if this game sounds at all interesting to you, you're looking for a rich, uh, thematic strategy game, one that has a dash of role-playing, epic uh, moments, and uh, backstabbing, and all these things that kind of make uh, tabletop games so memorable and fun, this could be a good fit for your group. Um, would highly recommend looking into it. And uh, really enjoyed the discussion of the history of this, because knowing that it's this kind of lost classic that uh, was kept alive by the fans and then brought back here in modern times. It's a, it's a really fun piece of board gaming history. I think anyone that's serious about games should uh, try to play Dune uh, at least once. That's our discussion on Dune. Like I said, we could talk about this for much longer, but at some point we do have to call it a day. I did thoroughly enjoy this discussion we had next podcast we're actually going to be talking about solo games a far cry from dune which i think should be played with four people at minimum but we are going to be talking about games you can play by yourself i know that's kind of a maligned idea by a lot of people but i think it's something that really people should be more open to oh by myself i want to play all by myself
I want to thank everybody who has stuck with us so far in the podcast and put up with our shenanigans. Um, we really appreciate it. <laughs> Your face right now is <laughs> worth, worth all of that. I'm, I'm watching all of our viewers just trickle away and all of our retention going to 0% in my in my mind's eye if you'll come back and listen to this episode i promise i will keep singing to you or am i lying because of i'm house harkonnen <laughs> <laughs> so if you enjoyed our podcast definitely do think about leaving us a review or just go ahead and reach out and contact us we'd love to get to hear your thoughts about dune specifically or just if there are other games that you feel like really embody this idea um matt how can people get in touch with us Check us out at uh, at Dice Pirates on Instagram. That's the best way to find us. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. Just look for the Dice Pirates. Um, but our main uh, hangout these days is on our Instagram account. We'd love for you to follow us there, message us, comment, and uh, just uh, come hang out with us on uh, the gram. All right, everybody. This has been Episode 4 of the Dice Pirates. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll be back next time. Bye.